0: I lived for half a year in West Texas and walked on the same road every evening at five and wrote many poems that had to do with that time. Also, I didn't speak for four months and just walked in the evening on the desert. This poem actually was written remembering a visit I made to a nearby dead town. Elegance. All that is uncared for, left alone in the stillness, in that pure silence married to the stillness of nature, a door off its hinges, shade and shadows in an empty room, leaks for light, raw where the tin roof rusted through the rustle of weeds in their different kinds of air in the mornings, year after year, a pecan tree and the house made out of mud bricks, accurate and unexpected beauty rattling and singing, if not to the sun, then to nothing and to no one.
1: That was Elegance, a poem by Linda Gregg, who died on March 20th this year, at the age of 76. Her good friend, the poet Timothy Liu, came over to my apartment to share some stories and read a few of her poems. When they first met, Linda Gregg was almost 50 and had published two poetry collections, Too Bright to See and Alma, that had been praised into the heavens by both reviewers and fellow poets. Timothy Liu, on the other hand, was young, mid-twenties, fresh out of college, and he hadn't published anything, but not for lack of trying. He'd been corresponding with the famous editor at Knopf, Gordon Lish, sending him poem after poem, probably 250 in all. Then one day, with exactly as much chutzpah as you imagine a 24-year-old poet to have, he decided to fly out to New York and show up at the Knopf offices on 201 East 50th Street.
2: I just went up to the guard and I had taken one of uh, Gordon's letters and on the back of it, I faked his handwriting. TL, come up and see me, GL. And I just showed the guard this note and he let me up, and he, he said, you know where you're going, right, 34th floor. I said, oh yeah, I know where I'm going. So I go up there and the doors open and it's Gordon's office, he's sitting there. Mm-hmm. And he says, Tim, 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 come in, as if like he had been expecting me his whole life or something. And it was really, it was great because he asked me a couple really major questions. And one is he said, who do you think is the greatest poet in America? Mm-hmm. And I said, Linda Gregg.
1: Gordon Lish gave him a piece of advice Go find her right away. And he did. A few months later, she was teaching at a writer's conference in Aspen, Colorado. And so that's where he went.
2: And that's when I first met Linda. And from day one at that conference, uh, I just followed Linda around everywhere. I had hoped somehow I could become her friend rather than have her as a sort of student teacher thing. And by the end of our time together, she said to me, Tim, I think, you know, my poems better than I know them. Wow. And partially she said that because I had collected all of her poems that hadn't yet appeared in her first two books. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is back in the day before the internet. So it was a lot of sort of index of American periodical verse and spending time in the stacks at the libraries and Xeroxing. That's what I did. And I think she figured, you know, you're going to be my, uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, archivist. (laughs) Right. And so that was the beginning of our friendship. And we were friends for almost 30 years.
1: This is Poetry Off the Shelf. Today, poets we lost this year. When you read Linda Gregg's poems, even the most abstract ones about Greek mythology or the ineffable, they're always rooted in the landscapes she saw and touched and smelled. A Greek island, a Texas desert road, or most often the landscape of her childhood, a thousand-acre ranch in windswept Marin County, California. Linda Gregg was not afraid of her own company, She even bought a little adobe house in Marfa, Texas, without heat or running water, where she could be alone and silent. But she was not afraid of love either. First, there was the poet Jack Gilbert, who she was with for eight years, but remained friends with until his death in 2012. After Jack, she got married to the philosopher John Brentlinger. And right when Timothy and Linda met, There was an unnamed man who we'll call the beloved, also known as the love of her life, and who she ended her marriage for. And I know better than to celebrate a woman poet by going on and on about the men in her life. But Linda Gregg never made a secret of the centrality of love to her. She said it in multiple interviews that she knew four things were important to her in life. Yes. Uh, nature. Yeah. Uh, the, the sacred. Yeah. Love. Yeah. And poetry.
2: Yeah. You know, what's funny is if we think about those four things, um, poetry, the sacred and nature do this kind of wonderful dance. Like they all belong together in her universe. They're mm. almost like they're one. Mm. But when you put romantic love on top of that, in a way, of course it dances with those three things, but it's kind of like the disruptor. Oh wow, that's interesting. You know, there's something about that, that if you're going to do the romantic love thing all the way in the way that the Sufis like Hafiz talked about it, um, then it's a different ball game. You know what I mean? Hafiz was outrageous. He said, if the beloved tells you to drink poison... You drink poison.
1: And do you feel like Linda was along those lines committed? Yeah, I do. Yeah.
2: I do. (laughs) For better and for worse. And so, yeah, she experienced a lot at the hands of different men. And in fact, that summer in Aspen, Colorado, at the Writers' Conference... She was kind of in the middle of the great love affair of her life, which also lasted decades. Mm -hmm. And it did dissolve the marriage that she had with John. And the decades that followed, she would often say, you know, I paid the price. But her beloved, the guy, didn't.
1: Oh, because he didn't have a marriage? No, he was
2: married, but he didn't leave his marriage. Oh, no. And it was very tough for her.
1: And so when you were dropped sort of in the middle of that at 25, yeah, I don't yeah. want to comment on your experience at that time, but you know, what, how did you navigate that?
2: The thing about Linda is if you're madly in love with someone, then that's a place that you could meet her because there's nothing she liked better yeah. than talking about who you're in love with. Like, who is this person? <laughs> and the sort of more hopeless and helpless (laughs) you were um like that's the ground floor yeah and in the same way nature the sacred and poetry if you were interested at all in talking about what that meant to you she just welcomed you in and i was madly in love with this uh violist at the houston symphony and that relationship only lasted three months uh but it It was both the best and the worst. It was a real crash and burn. But it was sort of like that was a shared space. Like, oh, we're of the same kind. Right. And even though she was far more experienced as a poet, as a lover, there was something equalizing. Mm -hmm. What mattered was your intensity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm so interested in that, you know, as you say, like almost a destructive force of yeah. of love. Um, I I, I want to first go to one of the other four elements, nature. Yes. Um, w- w- sh- she grew up in in Marin County, California. Right. What do you know about her childhood?
2: Well, so she um, grew up as an identical twin, and they were born here in Suffern, New York. And she always loved that she was born in Suffern <laughs> of all <other> places. <laughs> But very quickly, uh, her parents moved out to Marin, Uh and they started a family camp and ranch, which was very progressive, lots of different art forms, there were horses, it was communal. And so Linda and Louise, they spent a lot of time in the forest behind their house. And they worked on the camp, but they, you can imagine like these two girls kind of running wild whether they're riding horses or whether they're just running around on the mountain. I mean, that was like paradise for her. Yeah. So the forests of Marin, like the coast, the water, even places like Bolinas mm-hmm. and Tamales Bay where, you know, Louise is, Point Reyes. These things for Linda's entire life, they gave her a lot.
1: But then when she was 17, something happened.
2: Her father threw her out. Why? Um, I, I'm gonna, i like hold off on, on that exactly. I mean, one of the things that's really tough after Lynn has died, and I've said this to her sister, Louise, and mm-hmm. also to some of her closest friends is we know so many stories about her that she's told this.
1: Yeah. Doesn't that, mean you need that, to share. That that we
2: would never share while she was alive. Of course. And what do we do now? Yeah. That she's gone on. And my husband said to me the other night, he just said, "Well, err on the safe side." Yeah. But I would say she was very marked by feeling like she was thrown out of paradise. And so there's something about that that was also permanent in her imagination.
1: She moved to the city and enrolled at San Francisco State. There, sitting in the back of his classroom, she first met the poet Jack Gilbert. They fell in love, and as soon as Linda Gregg graduated, they packed their bags and went to Greece.
2: And Greece was a paradise for her as well. And imagine, like, you're in Greece, you're traveling around with Jack Gilbert, And you're living in a place where, first off, back in the 60s, it was cheap. It was dirt cheap. It's not dirt cheap now, right? So there's something about that 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 we have to remember. You didn't go to Greece for fun in the sun and (laughs) R&R. Right. It was pretty rigorous, you know, to live in a stone cottage where all you have is an oil lamp and no running water. I would say there's something about the poverty, the minimalism, and what I'll call the desert, it appealed to her. Mm -hmm. I mean, she didn't buy that place later in life out in Marfa, Texas for $8,000 for nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, we know the Chinati Foundation there, the Lannins there, there's all those Donald Judds out there, and she loved that. She loved the art there. But what she loved is how desiccated and just private those desert roads were. It spoke to something that was inside of her, And it certainly allowed her to not have to deal a whole lot with people. Um, We would often talk about how, if you want to see what you're made of as a writer, just go rent that cabin that's off the grid, no internet, and just try it for a weekend. And what you'll find is most people just, they, they can't do it very well. If at all, Mm. she had a great capacity for solitude. Mm. But she also said to me, how do you live your life? Like, are you going to live your life and spend 40 to 60 hours a week working in New York? Or are you going to live meagerly off 12 to 15 grand a year so that you can have time to live in the imagination but to live in the realm of the imagination to live in the realm of the sacred means you have to give up a lot and This is something that she shared with Jack Gilbert. I mean they were both really famous as adults never ever having a full time permanent job they they didn 't want that, and that taught me so much as a friend and as you know someone dedicating myself to poetry is to ask this question really early on, how much money is enough? And what am I willing to give up materially Mm -hmm. in order to go into some other space? There's something about the world that you have to give up. There's something about uh, materialistic needs. You have to limit those so that you can have time. Linda's father liked to say, You're going to have to slow way down Mm. if you want to catch up to me. (laughs) That's right. And this is something that, that Linda lived. So if you're going to live in that slow time in, in this space of, of soul making, it's just not going to happen if you're, busy doing you know she would often call a lot of poets in america who were quite renowned and respected uh they were all like busy bees to her just running around teaching their classes getting on planes and she did some of that Mm -hmm. but she did a lot less of it Mm -hmm. Let me read a poem of hers. Um, This is from her first book, because I think it speaks to some of these things that we've been circling around. And so this is uh, a poem I adore, sun, moon, kelp, flower, or goat. Later, I would say, I have cut myself free from order, statistics and whatnot, what have you but I was never connected to anything. Marriage taught me to let go more, as if I knew what I wanted, as if I were after something. The finally was that year as I walked the island every day, I could feel something extraordinary. It was the same in me as outside me. I could say us, The flat land I walked, the mountain approaching, the blanching of everything living and dying, ruined hills and towns without roofs on the houses, men and women in black clothing offering water, singing, being silent, laughing, dying, as if that were anything to us who were nature and beyond suffering what survives, the part which remains. What is birth and death to sun, fish, kelp, eggs, but there is kindness, which feeds us another way with windlessness, empty heat or the taste of grapes.
1: That's so incredible. C- can you keep it open for a second? Yeah. Because that line, um, what is birth and death to send fish, kelp, eggs? <laughs> yeah. It's incredible. I mean, like, death is such a preoccupation for poets, but then this question sort of almost makes makes a joke out of it, you know?
2: Yeah, and it's almost like if you go all the way with the idea of Keats' negative capability, mm-hmm. you know, or Emerson's transparent eye, is she just becomes one with nature. And the thing is, you can't you can't learn this in a classroom. You can't learn this in a workshop, even in you know, at a mighty place like the writer's <laughs> workshop in, in Iowa. Yeah. And and that was Linda's whole point. You don't get to write this poem if you're not living it.
1: Yeah. And It also brings me back to this thing that that I read. She would lament the fact that her students often came into class blind to the physical world.
2: Yes. Um, One of the exercises she liked, which you may have encountered, is she would do this exercise called seeing six things. Mm. And what she wanted her students to do... So here's the thing. I became her friend, but secretly I was always her student. (laughs) (laughs) You know, except I never sat at a workshop with her. I always was like, after the workshop, bringing her tea and stuff. But one of the things she wanted her students to do was every day walk around and notice six things in the real world and just write them down plainly. And she said, boy, if you could do that, you're you're, you're really going to become a poet. She found a lot of poetry that was detached from the world mm-hmm. and I mean if you think about I mean listen to how abstract this poem begins that I just read later I would say I've cut myself free from order statistics and whatnot what have you but I was never connected to anything there's no concrete thing there
0: mm-hmm.
2: I mean this is like the mind Linda was brilliant uh philosophically she's great abstract poet But what she was tired of in American poetry is people who were disembodied and kind of just like a head Mm -hmm. without the heart or the flesh. Mm -hmm. And so seeing things, noticing things in the real world was grounding. And it's in every poem that she ever wrote. Like That was very important to her.
1: Yeah, and I want to stick with that seeing for a little bit because I think it's one of those things that we so often misunderstand, right? And that even I think her students misunderstood because when when they would come in with their six things, it was often painstakingly deliberate, like they had really looked at the lamp on their bedstand, you know, yeah. or they would only notice what was sort of screaming for their attention, like a car wreck on the side of the road. Yes, or they would be poetic, you know, like they would l- yeah. look at the trees with s- snow on them and describe them like old men <laughs> with the weight of years on their <laughs> shoulders, you know, something yeah. like that. <laughs> Yeah. What like what did she what kind of seeing was she really talking about? What did she want?
2: Well, I think for example, um in this poem she says towns without roofs on the houses. Right? It's so plain. Mm-hmm. But it's so rich. Cuz what does that mean? Towns without roofs on the houses seems to suggest to me that once there were roofs Mm. and where are they now i think there's something about this that gets to the seeing that it's not being descriptive Mm -hmm. or frilly right it's like the nouns and the verbs right and i think so that's the kind of seeing so the question then becomes well what are you noticing what are the things and the actions that you're perceiving Because whatever you put down on paper, it's going to tell us something about your spiritual state of being.
3: Right.
1: Yeah. What I thought was so great about her take on seeing too, is that she almost seemed to say that you, you shouldn't be the one doing the seeing Uh, it, it should be happening to you almost. Like if you mm. put too much will and stuff into that, yeah. you' like, I'm going to notice things, then you're doing it wrong already. Yeah.
2: There's something about don't go into the world as a conquistador. Mm. Just humbly walk in the world and just things will present themselves to you. And so, yeah, there is something passive or also something yin about it. Mm. It's like setting the yang part of us down a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, to not just rope everything in. And maybe, you know, that has something to do with um, if you want to catch up to me, you have to slow way down. Slowing down is necessary really for one reason, and it's so that we can feel. Feeling happens in slow time. As poets, it's really important. It doesn't mean we, we can't be pyrotechnic or frenetic in poems if we want to because we want everything to come in but if you don't have that space slow enough to really feel what's going on then you're, you're going to miss it. So let me read this poem. So this is from the Sacraments of Desire and so I feel like this poem exists in a slow time, um, singing enough to feel the rain. And I'm just laughing because we have the adverb quickly in the opening line. I am alone writing as quickly as I can. Dulled by being awake at four in the morning between the past and future without a life writing on the line I walk between death and youth, between having and loss, passion and bravery absolutes, and I don't have anything but the memory of Aphrodite's elbow pushing up through the dirt. Um, And in fact, I'm going to take a sidebar here, and I will finish this poem. Linda often had stories where people would fly out and they would visit her on Greece, and they would be walking on the mountain of the three goddesses on, on Paros. And one time there was a man who was so upset because they spent the whole day on the mountain and he, he couldn't see any shards. Sharks? Shards. Not sharks. <laughs> oh, okay. Shards. Like broken off pieces of pottery, statuary, oh. funerary things. Right. Whereas Linda would just walk around there and she's just be picking them up left and right. And so, what is the point? Well, one is she could see them. Like she knew the difference between a rock and a shard, right? But the other thing is there's something in her that was already, I'm going to say, emptied out and spiritually conditioned. So that if you go up there and you just want to grab a few pieces, broken pieces of Aphrodite to put in your bag and take on the plane home, what Linda seemed to suggest is maybe Aphrodite won't show herself. But that if she's sacred to you and that you're not going to pillage, Mm -hmm. then you'll see her all over the mountain. Does that sort of make sense?
1: Absolutely. And I love that idea also in general of like not pillaging, right? It seems to be like how she lived, yes. right? Like I'm just going to take enough and then that's that, you know?
2: I mean, the great thing about Linda, there's another part of her that was <laughs> totally in touch with her trickster. And she's a great thief. <laughs> she did get to smuggle a few things out. I'm going to tell you a story and this still haunts me. So when I visited her on Paros in 2004, And she was living higher up in a village called Lefkos. And I remember one time I went up there and I stayed overnight there. And in the morning, we just sat in the front room and the sunlight was coming through the room. And it was shining on a head, a little head about the size of a softball, and parian marble, and it was the head of Eros pushing up through the dirt. And his face was a little bit damaged from, you know, 2,000 years. And as we were looking at this head, the sun came out and it just hit the head and we couldn't believe it. And so one of the things we were talking about is how in the fuck are we going to get this out of Greece? Because if you have it in a basket and you're coming through customs Mm -hmm. and they catch you with it, you're going straight to jail. It's like serious, serious crime. And so what, what happened to this head? Uh, She gave it to a friend and he went out on his property in Greece. This is on Paros Uh And he laid down at the foot of a tree and the exact length of his body. He was facing north and where the feet ended, he dug a hole and he buried the head. Now, the only problem is what fucking tree was it?
3: Oh,
1: no.
2: (laughs) Right. And of course, I love in this poem, she says, and I don't have anything but the memory. But in some ways, the poem is saying that's enough. So coming back to the poem, I don't have anything, but the memory of Aphrodite's elbow pushing up through the dirt, golden with the sunlight on it. I am far from there in a hurry, not to miss the joining, struggling to explain that this worst time is important. It is just past autumn now and the leaves are down wet on the road. Some of her shoulders showed, but not enough to tell whether she was facing my way. Any of it is most of it, as any part of Cezanne is almost all of Cezanne. Now is so late in the world that there is silence. Heart is as beautiful as ever. What can we expect of a woman buried in the earth? most of it is enough some of it is almost enough just as i am a body too and if he leans down over me there will be a world a train goes past making an incidental sound something is nourished by the loss an ending and beginning at once the world does not sing but we do i sing to lessen the suffering, thinking of the factory girl Hopkins said lived a long time on the sacrament alone. But I also sing to inhabit this abundance. This is the first time that I've read this poem um, out loud since her death, and it really chokes me up Like when she says, what can we expect of a woman buried in the earth? Because now I'm thinking of Linda. And I would have never thought of her while she was alive in that line. And just as I am a body too. And those of us that are mourning her uh, intensely right now, you know, day after day, month after month, uh, the first thing we're aware of is that she doesn't have a body anymore. Yeah. And now all we have is the body of work which is so tremendous, mm, yeah. but is it compensation, you know, for not having th- the body, yeah. you know, and um, there is some compensation there, you know, there is some, you know, it's funny when I was uh, thinking about uh, meeting you today, I was reminded of something that my mentor Richard Howard once said in a class and we were studying Elizabeth Bishop poems at the time. And he says, you know, one of the ways you can tell whether or not you're dealing with a major poet or a minor poet, it's if you ask the question, what are their greatest poems? With a minor poet, there'll be five or six titles that everyone will name. But if you have a major poet, everyone will have their own five or six and you'll have like a hundred titles. Wow. Isn't that like a beautiful thing to think about? I
1: <laughs> love that. That's that abundance again. <laughs> yeah, right? it's that
2: abundance. And when you asked me earlier in an email, you know, if you want, think of three or four poems, I just grabbed the new and selected off the shelf of Linda's. And it's just like, I could pick any poem in this book.
1: But I love that. <laughs> that. That goes back to that line where... It says most of it, as any, any of
2: it is most of it. Oh, there we go. As any part of Cezanne is almost all of Cezanne. The last 10 years of her life she had the memory of Marin she had the memory of Greece and she longed to go back mm. but is the Greece mm-hmm. of the 21st century how different is that from the Greece that she knew yeah you know how ruined is it by money and tourism yeah. you know and George Clooney on a yacht mm-hmm. and she felt that way about New York uh-huh. so she was in that apartment on 103 St. Mark's and it was rent I control When I first met her, it was like four hundred a month. I think by the end of her life, it was like maybe more like eight hundred a month, right? Which is nothing, because everyone else' market rate in that building was four grand a month, right, for like a one bedroom. And I don't want to use the word gentrification; it's it's such shorthand. I'll just say, yeah, the Jewish bakery on Ninth Avenue folded. All these things, one by one, folded up, and that was hard for her. I think it's hard for anyone who's in her seventies. And what it really means is the world that you knew, piece by piece, it's dismantled. And then how much do you really want to be here? And I think that that really was part of her story, um, certainly in the last seven years of her life. That there's a part of her that didn't need to be here anymore. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And I think, you know, Linda died in March and I think her death was really probably seven years in the making. It was just kind of a slow winding down that she just got so um, battered and uh, heartbroken. Yeah. With the death of her mother in the beginning of the 21st century, and then when Jack died in 2012, she just shut down. She stopped... Doing anything public. She really cut herself off.
1: Yeah. From you too? From
2: yeah. me too. And this is one of the things that's really tough. I think on the one hand, we could think of the spiritual life as a kind of desert, uh, mm-hmm. saint ascetic thing. Mm-hmm. But the other part of it is perhaps we feel like community isn't really possible anymore. But she tried to stay connected in the ways that she could. Right? If you want to come up and read a poem in her apartment, she would go to town and talk about what was in the poem that had merit, and she'd talk about what's not working in it. Mm-hmm. She was generous. Generous with her time, but also generous with her uh, candor and her honesty. And her devotion, finally, wasn't to the person who wrote the poem. Her devotion was to Poetry.
1: want to go back to nature because it seems like that was the place where she was most uh, wildly herself Mm -hmm. um and she did live for four decades in an apartment in new york and so i wonder in what ways did she bring some of that vastness into her life
2: so one of the first things i think about strangely as a parallel is she used to go to the Met Museum to look at Rembrandt's self-portrait. And so there's a poem where she talked about going there and that tears are falling down her face and that a security guard had to dr- basically tell her we're closed. You've got to go. And I've been with her at the Met looking at that Rembrandt. Mm-hmm. you know, And I felt like we might as well have been in nature. It's a little hard for me to explain why there's an equivalence, but it would be the same thing like if you're going to go out into forest and and, and look at a tree.
1: I appreciate that you're saying, you know, I I don't really know why it's the same thing, but could you try?
2: Yeah. Um, You know, they've done studies, right? Like how long do you look at a painting (laughs) at a museum, right? And for a lot of people, it's pretty much 10 seconds. It's the selfie. They take a picture of the card, And that's it, right? And they move on. But what does it mean to spend hours looking at one painting? What does it mean to travel to a museum and only hang out with that one painting as if it were a person? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean to go back over and over? I think that has something to do with nature. It has something to do with paying attention. We're not just in it and passing through quickly. We're like sitting still in it. I want to throw this in a totally different direction. So one time there was a baby bird and it had fallen out of a nest. My husband and I have saved birds before. The thing that's really tough is half of the time you're not going to be able to save the bird. And I was telling Linda the story, how one of my friends just kind of said, why not just leave that baby bird there? Uh, It'll be eaten by a cat or, you know, like let nature take its course. And Linda said to me, she says, aren't we nature?
1: Anna Greg died of cancer at Beth Israel Hospital in New York on March 20th at the age of 76. She was the author of Too Bright to See, Alma, Sacraments of Desire, Chosen by the Lion, Things and Flesh, In the Middle Distance, and her last collection, published in 2008, All of It Singing. Linda Gregg won a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Whiting Award, a Lannan Literary Foundation Fellowship, and many other awards. And she taught at several places, from the Iowa Writers' Workshop to Columbia and Princeton. Her good friend, Timothy Liu, is the author of nine poetry collections, including Say Goodnight, Of Thee I Sing, and his latest, Let Ride. And he teaches at William Patterson University. Before you go, I wanted to share something that I found on the Poetry Foundation website, a poem that made me think some more about community and the times where we can't quite bring ourselves to connect. It was written by another well-traveled, deeply spiritual New York poet who died this year in July, Marie Ponceau. So here's the poem. It's titled Winter.
4: This is a sonnet about... Something that really happened, pretty much exactly the way it says in the poem. I lived in a Queen's neighborhood where we went out and shoveled our snow very dutifully as soon as it fell so that we would be good citizens. It was in a time of great change, heading into the 70s. It was a hard time to be an adolescent And that's what my boys were. I have six sons. This is the youngest of the lot. Winter. I don't know what to say to you, neighbor, as you shovel snow from your part of our street, neat in your Greek black. I've waited for chance to find words. Now, by chance, we meet. We took our boys to the same kindergarten 13 years ago when our husbands went. Both boys hated school, dropped out feral, dropped into separate troubles. You shift snow fast, back bent, but your boy killed himself six days dead. My boy washed your wall When the police were done, he says, we weren't friends, and shakes his head, I told him it was great he had that gun, and shakes, I shake, close to you, close to you, you have a path to clear, and so you do. That Was
1: Winter, by Marie Ponceau. Marie Ponceau and Linda Gregg are not the only poets who passed on this year. We also lost Mary Oliver in January, Kathleen Fraser in February, Les Murray and Stanley Plumley in April, Karen Wood in July, Toni Morrison in August, Jane Mead in September, Kieron Carson, John Jorno, and Tom McIntyre in October, and Clive James, the last week of November. But there is one poet I haven't mentioned yet. A giant in the field. You probably know who I'm talking about already. W.S. Merwin, the Pulitzer Prize winner and former poet laureate, who died just five days before Linda Gregg. He, too, spent much of his life traveling and living elsewhere, including on Maui, where he settled in 1976 and worked tirelessly to restore the forest surrounding the old pineapple plantation he'd bought. And he too was good at seeing and truly noticing the physical world around him, such as in this poem, Vixen, which he read in front of a live audience in 2011 and starts with a classic Merwin introduction.
3: The vixen is not named for an embittered feeling about an old love affair. The vixen is, was a vixen, female fox. And if you want to symbolize her, you can do that if you like, but uh, you have to take her as a fox before you take her as a symbol. She didn't care about being taken as a symbol. Vixen. Comet of stillness, princess of what is over, High note held without trembling, without voice, without sound. Aura of complete darkness, keeper of the kept secrets, of the destroyed stories, the escaped dreams, the sentences never caught in words, warden of where the river went, touch of its surface, sybil of the extinguished, window onto the hidden place and the other time. At the foot of the wall, by the road, patient, without waiting, in the full moonlight of autumn, at the hour when I was born, you no longer go out like a flame at the sight of me. You are still warmer than the moonlight gleaming on you. Even now you are unharmed, even now perfect, as you have always been. Now when your light paws are running on the breathless night, On the bridge with one end, I remember you. When I have heard you, the soles of my feet have made answer. When I have seen you, I have waked and slipped from the calendars, from the creeds of difference and the contradictions that were my life, and all the crumbling fabrications as long as it lasted, until something that we were had ended. When you are no longer anything, let me catch sight of you again Going over the wall And before the garden is extinct And the woods are figures Guttering on a screen Let my words find their own places In the silence after the animals
1: That was Vixen Written and read by W.S. Merwin, Who died in March You can find out more On Linda Gregg, Timothy Liu Marie Ponceau, W.S. Merwin, Mary Oliver, Kathleen Fraser, Les Murray, Stanley Plumley, Karen Wood, Toni Morrison, Jane Mead, Kieron Carson, John Jorno, Tom McIntyre, and Clive James on the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus. I'm Helena De Groot. See you next year, and thank you for listening.